Welcome, eagles and eaglets, to another edition of Road Noise. This is Will. This is Jay. We hope you're buckled up tight and have your legs, arms, and wings inside your vehicle at all times. Well, Eagles, today I am in the booth alone while Jay is off on the fifth grade retreat. I like to think that in his heart, Jay is not all that different from a fifth grader, so he should feel right at home. Luckily, last week, Jay and I talked for nearly three hours. You only heard 36 minutes, but we talked for three hours And a lot of that discussion we had to leave on the cutting room floor, and that discussion focused on cell phones and smartphones. So today I'm going to share some snippets from that conversation with you. Before I do that, though, I have to address the elephant in the room, at least for our older students, and that's OCA's more restrictive stance on cell phones this year. As one OCA alumnus recently asked me, why, Mr. Blanchard, are you suddenly strict and boring? (laughs) Well, before I answer that, I want to clarify. I don't believe in being boring. I've made no secret that I want our students to mature as thinkers, leaders, and believers, but I don't think maturity and fun need to be mutually exclusive ideas. Mature people should still take a pie to the face from time to time. I also don't believe technology is bad. I love tech, actually, and smartphones in particular are a powerful and amazing piece of technology. I use mine often for photography, art, music, podcasts, and more emails than I care to count. So why am I suddenly strict and boring? It won't surprise you from last week's conversation that we're thinking a lot on addiction and mental health for our young people right now, but there's more to it than that with smartphones. If you go right now and Google smartphones and teens, You'll find millions of hits to tell you why we're talking about this. We have a complex and unhealthy relationship with our phones, and our culture is still trying to figure it all out. I want to give you a few authors, stats, and terms actually to jot down and explore on this front. In my conversation with Jay, you're going to hear about Sherry Turkle. Sherry is a sociologist from MIT who wrote a book called Reclaiming Conversations. She also has a couple other books, one by the name of Alone Together, and the Empathy Diaries. Her work concerns how technology use is impacting our social skills and our ability to empathize with one another. It's a huge deal, a huge problem, and you're going to hear Jay talk about it at length in the coming episode. Another influential author in this space is a lady by the name of Jean Twingay, a psychologist at San Diego State, whose book iGen pulled back the curtain on several unsettling facts and effects of smartphone use in the generation born specifically between 1995 and 2012, which, if you're keeping track, that would include all of our students in the secondary school, that's grades 7 through 12 at OCA. Twinge writes that sleep is down, time with friends is way down, loneliness is up, attention spans have shortened, anxiety is up, addiction is high, and empathy is disappearing. You'll read similar findings from a Christian perspective in Tony Ranke's book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, and in Timothy Willard's new book, The Beauty Chasers, which I'm excited to tell you, Willard will actually be on our campus in December to visit with our students and families. More on that in future podcasts. I also just read a fascinating blog from a man by the name of Drew Johnson. He's a professor at the King's College in New York who puts his students through a required phone detox every year. One of his big takeaways is that young people have zero silence in their lives. No room for boredom, 
no Sabbath rest, no time for contemplation. I could go on, but those authors are great places to start. Why are so many writing about this topic? Well, Pew Research says that 97% of Americans own a cell phone. 85% own a smartphone. The average person will poke at their screen a couple thousand times a day over 76 distinct sessions. From 7 a.m. to dinner time, your average American, you and me, we are observably tethered to our devices. In 2021, over half of Americans said their spouse is often or sometimes distracted by their phone during conversation, and one in three adults said they're almost constantly online. All of this activity has led to some fun new terms for you language nerds out there. Here are a few you can use to impress your friends next time you chat. Here's your first term. This one comes from the field of psychology. It's called nomophobia. That's N-O-M-O-phobia. It stands for no mobile phone phobia, and it refers to an extreme fear of not having your phone or not being able to use your phone. It might sound funny, but over half of our population is dealing with nobophobia. And parents, this is actually a challenge we can sometimes make worse for our kids. If you regularly ping your son or daughter for check-ins on their phone and you respond negatively if they're slow getting back with you, studies suggest you're directly contributing to their phone anxieties. Here's another, phantom vibration syndrome. You probably know this one. This is when you're almost positive your phone just buzzed when it actually didn't. This is also anxiety-inducing and can be made more so during instances when you can't physically check your phone to be sure it didn't actually buzz. Another fun one, text neck. This isn't a clinical term as far as I know, but it's commonly used to describe physical ailments brought on by maintaining a forward head posture for prolonged periods of time. This causes stress injuries, often resulting in cervical and shoulder pain, headaches, and chronic shifts in posture. And finally, this is a big one, de-individuated communication or de-individuation. This has to do with how we behave during periods of perceived anonymity. When we feel like we can disappear in a crowd or behind a veil, reduced accountability can lead to more impulsive, selfish, and uncompassionate behavior. You'll hear Jay and I talk about this a lot coming up here in a second. All right, remember those for your next trivia night. Nomophobia, phantom vibration syndrome, text neck, and de-individuated communication. Point of all this, taking control of our phones rather than our phones taking control of us. That's a challenge to which we all must rise, particularly those of us directly caring for the next generations, which is what brings OCA to our stronger policy and Jay and I to this conversation. I hope you enjoy listening in. Well, let's move on to Sherry Turkle. Her book is called Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a digital age, and that's from 2015. And the impetus for that book is she went to visit a private school in upstate New York, probably not all that different than ours. The administration there had noticed a change in the behavior of their students, especially the relationships that they had with one another. Mm-hmm. And what Turkle what, what, realized, what was the change? they were stunted. Okay. 
and not communicating, not connecting as quickly. Very surface in their relationships. And it felt to the administration that 12-year-olds were acting like 8-year-olds. We know what these natural maturation markers look like. Specifically socially. Socially, they felt like these kids were so stunted. Okay. So she goes in to study the environment, what's going on, Mm -hmm. and it becomes this book. She says, face-to-face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing that we do. It is when we see each other's faces and hear each other's voices that we become most human to each other. So her fear in the book is that we're raising a generation of young people who don't empathize with their fellow human beings. What does that do? What does that do for our school? And I feel like we've seen a big change already this year in just having the kids turn the phone off for the six or seven hours that they're here at OCA. They need some heavy breaks from it. Maybe as a family, you don't decide that you're going to turn it completely off. But in what ways are you giving your kids a break? And maybe with a heavy hand sometimes, right? After six o'clock, this gets turned off. We do the same thing with video games, don't we? But for some reason, the phone is just on. Well, and as adults, we're not modeling (laughs) restraint. You're ahead of me. You got ahead of my notes. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. No, you keep going. Since we've instituted the policy on phones at OCA, I'm mindful myself of how often I get my phone out. Yes. Because now I stand out. The students can't have their phones out. So in a crowded auditorium, if I'm the only person with a phone out... I'm very aware, and I've noticed how often I need to check my need, need in quotes, to check my phone. I think we've grown so accustomed to constantly checking in and having some kind of stimulus. It's a detox. It's changing the way that you function as a human being. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just that constant interaction and stimulation digitally. Well, and face-to-face interaction, I think, ceases to be enough, right? So I can be in conversation with you. And and it's not... Stimulating. And still think, well, I should check my phone. Yeah. Well, I mean, how often have you seen people do this? You're in conversation. You're right. If you were to stop them, they may not even be able to tell you what they're checking it for. I do this with my own kids and my wife sometimes, just start flipping through who knows what and have to check myself and go, why in the world was I bored with my nine-year-old? Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Do you feel like that's changed some of the ways that you interact with your phone at home? That oh, you've oh, yeah. interacted with it less here on campus? Yeah, I think so. I try to be more disciplined at home anyway to just put my phone down, physically separating from my phone. So before we go way down that track, though, I I wanted to go back to this idea of empathy, not empathizing with people. I think a lot of that has to do with, we used to have students this years ago in the college environment, they would put in requests for things via digital ticket system. So they're computer would be broken, door was broken on their dorm room, things like that. And what we found out is you would get these just mean messages from like kids you knew, right. like sweet Christian kids. It'd be blasting you. Obviously, your intelligence and your responsibility are all in question because my computer's broken. Sometimes language was used. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't explicit, but it wasn't nice. We started actually physically going to dorm rooms and places and confronting kids and being like, hey, got your message. Like, really nice. Got your message about this fix. And they were always embarrassed. You'd watch them turn red and go, oh, I didn't mean what I said. It became very clear to me that the filtering through technology had dehumanized it, right? I didn't have to see the facial expression of the person on the other end. I didn't have to think of them as a flesh and blood human being. I'm talking to a computer. I'm talking to a phone. Who cares how they receive it? Because when they receive it, I'm not going to be there. And I don't even have to question what it might be. No gamble. Right. Are you going to find this funny? Doesn't matter. 
Right? I don't have to see your response. Right. And then it gives the person on the other end time to even fabricate a response. You push something back that it seems like, man, you thought it was hilarious. You take students, you take adults out of that context and put them face to face. Suddenly you realize that interacting with a human being eyeball to eyeball is truly in the moment. And body language sometimes is instinctual and reactive. And so it's raw and real and vulnerable in ways that for millennia we've been comfortable with because that's the only thing we had. Right. But I think that's why we see audio phone usage down as well. Sure. Because now I have to have in the moment auditory reaction. I don't see their body language, but I have to hear them gasp or sit in silence. And I don't like that. So I'll, I'll communicate through text only. Turgle makes all these points. See, in her a, book. She's a genius. Did you read it? <laughs> did you get the clips? I, I, I did not, but I was the ghostwriter on that book. Well, um, she's saying that. Students prefer text to real conversations. They prefer text to phone calls. Some of the responses are, well, I have to have time to think about my response. I have to have time to craft some brilliant relay to whatever was thrown at me. The real world isn't that way, Mm -hmm. or at least it hasn't been. But our young people are preferring those modes of communication more and more. It becomes another version of the highlight reel. Sure. I only ever recognize that you have great, perfect answers. You're always articulate, and yet... I fumble around in my head for the right words. Well, you're probably doing the exact same thing. Right. I don't know when you read my text. This idea of, well, I can read a text and respond 30 minutes later after using a thesaurus. Yeah. (laughs) And the other person's like, oh, my goodness, look at their vocabulary and all this stuff. Nobody's doing that. I was an English major. I do that. But, yeah, it's just another version of the perfection game. We're lucky if the kids use punctuation or capitalization. Both of those things are rude. I understand it. (laughs) It's like you're yelling if you use punctuation. Apparently. All the all those commas. This is from Turkle's book as well. She lets us know that there's been a 40% decline since 2005 in the markers for empathy among college students. Is this face-to-face as well? That's how they're judging it, okay. is the face-to-face interactions. Okay. What are the markers? She doesn't get into the weeds and all that. Okay. So she's saying that once you see a person face-to-face, it's carrying over because I've always filtered my human interaction through a device. Now when I actually see a flesh-and-blood human being, I still don't empathize. Right. That's what the teachers were seeing at the school, which becomes this huge research project and why we have this book, which I highly recommend. I think all of you parents would benefit greatly from reading her book, Reclaiming Conversation. It's excellent. This year, now that we've been a little bit more strict about cell phones and their use, how have you seen that change social interaction, body language, empathy, if you can see it? I don't get as many students in my office as you and Miss Scott do on a Mm -hmm. regular basis for behavioral issues or whatnot. But I would hear the chatter of it, Mm -hmm. at least, and sometimes I would get called into those meetings, and it seems even those are are way down than what I remember last year. Because I think what was happening is the phone was getting people in trouble Mm. a lot, and not because the phone was out, but because of the message they were sending with the phone or because the video that they were taking with the phone and then sending to somebody else. So you had this whole other element of distraction that was happening in the classroom that became the impetus for behavioral problems or it became the impetus for people getting sideways with one another. And I just haven't heard nearly as much. I see genuinely happier kids in the hallway who are actually looking at each other and talking to each other. That four or five minutes in the hallway is not just my opportunity now to look at my phone and see what I missed. That four or five minutes is community. Yeah, It's students engaging with one another, talking to one another, laughing, having a good time. 
if that's all that that policy did, that's gold. Mm-hmm. But I think we're seeing so many other benefits from it as well. I'll be interested in how kids' grades are yeah. this semester and if, if we see an uptick in that as well. I would be shocked if we don't. Chapel's very different. Yes. I remember one chapel last year, I just went around and grabbed phones that were out, and I had a stack of phones. I had like a phone sandwich in mm-hmm. my hand. There was probably eight or ten of them, and I could not believe how many times those buzzed in the 20 minutes that I had them oh, in yeah. my hand. I mean, you're getting dinged all the time, like you said. Mm-hmm. What does that do to our young people's minds? That they're thinking, I got to check that. I got to check that. I got to check that. What is that? Who was that? I'm trying to do math right now, but I really want to know what's buzzing in my pocket. I'm going to give you one more quote. This is from a guy named Timothy Wildard, who wrote a book called The Beauty Chasers, Recapturing the Wonder of the Divine. He's going to be a special guest of our school later this year. Tim writes about beauty Mm -hmm. in the works of C.S. Lewis. In his book, he talks a lot just about our culture and what takes us away from beauty and what takes us away from wonder. And he's trying to help us connect to those things that are near to the heart of God. He says this, Lest we think it's all just cute and not a problem, Children as young as 10 now enter rehab for anxiety attributed to social media and for being addicted to their devices. Each decision to scroll or view a screen becomes a decision to cultivate a disengaged existence. How we spend our time reveals much about our hearts and what we value, never mind how using devices slowly reprograms the way we think and interact with one another. This book came out this year. Yeah. This is harmful to our young people in in myriad ways. And as those who have been commissioned to bring them as close as we can to the heart of God, how are we navigating this as parents? What is our best response? Now, I'll tell you, as a father of a 12 and 15-year-old, where I'm at, my kids don't have social media. My kids have a phone, but it's a house phone. There's one. It's an old iPhone. Mm-hmm. And so they can text their friends, which happens a lot. There's a lot of FaceTime that seems to happen. So I'm all in favor of that. Mm-hmm. It's even better than a phone call. Right. So there is a cell phone in their lives, but it's got a pretty short leash. What are you thinking with your own children? I mean, it's hard to imagine the future of media and technology. Are you going to put a chip in their heads? For my kids? Am I going to put a chip in their heads? I don't know. What does it cost? The, you know, so my oldest is nine. So I'm hoping she's many years away from a phone. Now, she's got some friends who have had phones since kindergarten. That they carry around with them? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Kindergarten? Yeah. Now, I think some of those are like emergency line phones. Like you can call just a couple numbers. Totally down with that. That makes sense. But I think some of them still are app-enabled. My kids, they have tablets. They can use them. We primarily use them when they travel. They play with them at home. We have seen some learning gains with our kids. They do a lot of education games and things on their phones. I don't see that a whole lot different than my own childhood. In fact, some of it seems better because I was playing a lot of games that had no educational value. Mm -hmm. So I like that part. I can see the addictive tendencies, though, even creeping up in my four-year-old who wants her tablet and can't even imagine time without it. And you're looking around at half a dozen Barbies strewn everywhere and going, you got plenty. It's nice outside. Look at all these options. And the only option she can consider is the tablet. If that happens, that's a red flag. Right. And it goes away. That's something Turkle talks about, that what we don't allow our kids to do anymore is be bored. Right. That's the worst thing that they can imagine is being bored. So give me this thing to entertain me. But Turkle's saying 
that's where creativity comes from. Oh, yeah. If we don't have that space to be bored, we don't get to dream dreams. If you're filling every waking moment, all your bandwidth with just stuff you're chewing up, you're just passive. It's just washing over you. How could you be creative? There's no space in which you can be. Right. All you're doing is digesting other people's creativity, Mm -hmm. which has a place. Yes. I love music. I love movies. I love art. I know you do too. Those things inspire. I struggle to think anyone can be a great musician without hearing other musicians. Right. You need to be digesting some and appreciating some. That's good. But if that's all you do, you're not putting anything out yourself. Right. I mean, you could argue then you're just sucking up the resources of the planet and not giving anything back. We love YouTube. And so some of our favorite creators are on that. But I don't give my boys unfettered access to YouTube. We watch it on this device in this room. And most of the time, mom and dad are watching it with you. My boys and I have a YouTube channel. Like, we also put stuff out into the world. Right. And that's some of my favorite moments with my boys are creating that content. There's 100 people who've watched that content. Yeah. But... That's kind of stuff will probably be in their weddings. Those are moments for you to be creative with your kids because they're inspired by the creativity of others, to your point. When I love technology, it's for what you just said. I mean, even when we were kids, what an iPhone can do in your pocket. It's crazy. We never could have imagined. No. And the fact that I can hand something that's intuitive to my four-year-old and she can learn how to make a video, edit that video, add music to it, draw pictures over the top of it, post it on a channel where people can see it. Obviously, there's lots of considerations socially and all that, but just the fact that you can do it. When we were kids, how many different pieces of tech are we talking about and channels and red tape that you would have to go through to produce content and put it out into the world? It's the total democratization of information. It's it's amazing, right? And so what I'm struck by is that if everyone was using the iPhone well... I can't imagine that being bad for our world or bad for the kingdom of God. Like, what if every Christian saw the iPhone in their pocket as a tool for bringing light to their community? Right. And for sharing truth, showing love, and seeking out people who are hurting. If we did those things, what a powerful tool. Right. The challenge is that's not the only thing it can do. So you get sidetracked with all of this junk. Arguably, that's probably where most of us spend our time, the junk. We're harping on the iPhone, but that's all technology. Yes. Tech's not going anywhere. I try to imagine what would Jesus do if he if he arrived in 2022? Would he go, you know what? I'm not going to use technology. I'm going to walk in the desert, and if people come to me, they'll come to me. I just don't think he would. Mm. Now, I think people would come to him. Sure. But I'd love to actually to see what he would do, because it's probably nothing like I would imagine. But I think if there are these ways to amplify a voice and reach a community, I like to think he would do that. I can anticipate one of the questions is, when do I give my kids this? Oh, yeah. I think all manner of parents are asking that question. One of the things that I see often is this arms race. Well, now this kid got it. Now all the dominoes fall and everybody has to have it. I don't want my kid to be the weirdo. As a parent of kids that are the weirdos, I don't see this massive decline in their social life. They still have a lot of friends. They're still well-liked. In fact, both of my boys are kind of hubs in their social wheels at school and at church and other places. My wife and I haven't leaned into the social pressure from our own peers. Now, we had a point with our small group at church where everybody was on board. We're going to wait forever to give our kids phones. But it really just took one couple to sort of break down and give the phone. 
And then it all kind of took off from there. And I hate that for parents who don't want to give their kid the phone yet. That's one of the things I love about OCA not having phones, just a phone-free zone, is that kids don't feel that pressure at school. Parents don't feel the pressure as much. Right. You don't know who has one or who doesn't. We want them to primarily have these interactions with other human beings in the real world face-to-face because, as Sherry Turkle says, face-to-face communication is the most human and humanizing thing that we do. Okay, well, that's it for my discussion with Jay from last week. But before I let you go, I do want to offer some tips for controlling your phones as a family. First, some rules from Jean Twingy. Number one, she says no phones or tablets in the bedroom at night. The light keeps you awake, and many negative habits on cell phones tend to surface when the world is asleep. Rule number two, take that a step further. No phone use at all within an hour of bedtime. Your brain needs time to come down from that stimulus, and this gives time for your body to prepare for sleep. Rule number three, limit leisure time on your phone to two hours or less. Studies show that more than this will actually negatively impact your sense of quote-unquote leisure. You don't become more rested or happier by staying on your phone longer than two hours. Now, this two hours does not include time at work or your homework. This is intended as downtime on your phone. And since we talked a lot about Sherry Turkle, she goes a step further than Twingy by advising that we say no to phones anywhere they might pull us away from a meaningful or important in-person experience. Some highlights here would include when you're cooking, driving, or playing. Particularly, she says, keep the phone out of your designated family time, which means for some of us, we should first get ourselves family time and keep that time sacred and phone-free. And finally, I'll offer you one last tip from us. Try praying over your phones. Commit your devices and their use to God. If that feels strange, ask yourself why. If it's not God's device, whose is it? When we commit our tools to God, it changes how we think about them. Phones don't have to be idols. I think they can magnify our kingdom gifts and kingdom giving if we're only intentional in how we use them. And with that, we are done with this week's edition of road noise next week jay will be back with me in the booth i don't know what our topic will be next week be sure to tell us by sending us an email or catching us in the hallway if there are certain topics or questions you'd like to hear us talk about in the meantime eagles we love you we think about you we pray about you very often have a great week